Welcome to Boston Confidential, Bean Town's True Crime Podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail in Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the dark side of the Athens of America, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey guys, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name is Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator in Boston, Massachusetts. And I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. And if I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. We had a great response to our series of Susan Taraskowitz shows, the second of which was an interview with Marlene Taraskowitz, Susan's mother. This case is still open and ongoing, and there's a $250,000 reward in this case. That's the highest reward I've ever seen. And don't forget, you can do this anonymously. You can call the Revere Police or the FBI and tell them anonymously, and you won't have to do anything else until it's time to testify. There's no need to be afraid of those losers. You don't owe them anything. They're not your friends. They're murderers. All right, guys, we got to move on to our next episode. This is a case that's always stuck with me as well. Sarah Pryor from Wayland, Massachusetts. This case happened in 1985, and it's still unsolved. There is a strong suspect. Again, guys, I'm going to have to issue a disclaimer. If you're not up for the type of episode that delineates how somebody was killed, how a child was killed, And everything that goes into it, this may not be the episode for you, okay? So just be advised going in. One of the things I didn't know about this case was that the prior family had just moved in to Wayland, Massachusetts, six weeks before Sarah disappeared. They had moved to the metropolitan Boston area in 1985, but it was just a few weeks before Sarah went missing. And... If you look at the prior family, they're just the all-American family in basically the all-American town. Wayland is a suburb of Boston, probably about 15 miles as the crow flies from the city. But it takes a little longer to get there on the Massachusetts Turnpike due to the traffic. But it's an area called Metro West. And Wayland is an affluent town. It's bucolic. It's beautiful. It borders Weston, Massachusetts, W-E-S-T-O-N. And that's probably the richest town in Massachusetts, or at least one of them. By all accounts, Sarah was a great kid. She was an athlete. She was great at school. She had a brother, Byron, an older brother, and another older sister, Meg, who was 15 at the time Sarah went missing, and her brother was 17. Sarah's mother, Barbara, and Sarah's father, Andrew Pryor, round out the family. They had just moved to Wayland, Massachusetts from the suburbs of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So they were new to the area. One of the things that's so scary about this case is that it's an everyday event. And I'm going to take you through it now, so brace yourselves. But on October 9th, 1985, about 4 p.m., it was a beautiful fall day. And if you've ever been in New England during the fall, you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about. Sarah 
decided she was going to go for a walk. And she had just watched television and had a bowl of jello. And she's walking out the door and she has one of those everyday conversations with her father, Andrew, that happens every day across America, it happens in my house all the time. And I bet it happens in yours. Andrew says to Sarah, aren't you going to wash that bowl out that you just used? She says, oh, dad, I'll do it as soon as I get home, I promise, and continues to walk out the door. Happens all the time, right? Well, she puts her Walkman on and heads up Route 126, walking towards Lincoln, Massachusetts. And this is a relatively main thoroughfare, but during the 1980s, it was a little more sparsely populated. Truth be told, Wayland at that time may have actually been considered a little more rural than suburban in the mid-1980s. It's considered suburban today because it's so close to the city, but in 1985, there wasn't much going on in Wayland. It was just a beautiful place to live, especially if you worked in the city of Boston. So Sarah continues on her walk down Route 126. It's also known as Concord Road. And it was relatively close to her house. I don't know the exact route she was taking, but at a certain point, if you made a left, you'd head back towards Lincoln and would kind of rope around back towards her house. So 4.45 p.m. comes and Andrew Pryor, the dad, has to drive his son to football practice. You see what I'm saying by an everyday American time frame here? This is just every day. So... They do that, and Andrew returns back to the house. By about 5.45 p.m., Barbara returns home from work, and Andrew meets her at the door and says, Sarah is still not home. If you've ever had that feeling when you can't locate your child immediately, it's a crazy type of panic. You don't want to go too crazy looking for her because she could just turn the corner at any time. But you get that sense of dread. And I think that's what happened with them. They end up calling the police and pretty soon a search party is organized. Keep in mind now, it's almost six o'clock. And at that time of the year in Metro Boston, it's getting dark or it is dark. So the police organize the search and they ask for volunteers. And let me tell you something about the communities of Wayland and Lincoln, Massachusetts. 2,000 people were organized very quickly and they started searching. The only thing that stopped them that night was the late hour, and they couldn't see a hand in front of their face. It's particularly wooded on that area of 126 that I was telling you about. So I think the search stopped at a certain point during the night. It was taken up again early the next morning. Sarah still hadn't returned home. The Wayland police, for their part, seemed to have done a great job. They seemed to have ascertained quickly that this was not a runaway type of situation. That may have had to do with Sarah's age, where, you know, a 10-year-old is not really capable of making up her mind and running away specifically like that. And there was no cause for her to do so. She wasn't angry at mom, dad. She just didn't fit the profile of a runaway. So the Wayland police and the Mass State Police did an excellent job focusing on an abduction or just a missing person rather than a runaway. In the early days, some witnesses did come forward. They said they did see Sarah walking down Route 126 towards Lincoln, and she was by herself. She had her headphones on. But at a certain point, witnesses lose track of her, obviously, and 
she's basically boom into the ether and gone. So days pass, then weeks. The police start investigating and they do what they usually do. They go from the inside out. They check out the prior family. They check out the neighbors, but they're all clean as whistles. And it's just a total mystery. And it would stay that way for almost a decade. The family was devastated. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. There was kind of a strange development in the case in 1987. As the Berlin Wall fell, journalist from the United States was walking the wall. And he was surprised to see graffiti on the wall. And he saw mention of Sarah Pryor written in graffiti on the wall. Words to the effect, Sarah Pryor from Wayland, Massachusetts, gone but not forgotten. And this stirred up some publicity on the case. It later turned out, at least the family thought, that Andrew Pryor's brother, Sarah's uncle, had written an article for the Stars and Stripes newspaper, which was published in Germany at the time. And a U.S. service man or woman had written this in honor of Sarah. So they wanted to see if this had anything to do. Could it have been a serviceman that was in Wayland at one time and then over to Germany? But I think the police quickly ruled that out, but they really had little to go on. They were working the case, but like I say, Sarah was just in the ether at this point. During this intervening time, the prize had to go through a lot of horseshit. There was psychics who contacted them, and you have to follow every lead, so they did, and the police did. But there was also some cruel hoaxes in this case where people were trying to pin her murder on other people and just basically screw with the family and there's a special place in hell for people like that so fast forward to april 1995 a person walking in the woods deep woods as it's described near the border with western massachusetts was in the woods and he found what he thought was a skull he was ultimately confirmed to be correct. There was a lot of work to be done for the DNA, and there was nothing to compare it to. They ended up comparing it to the DNA to Barbara Pryor, and this was when DNA was in its infancy. So the FBI helped, and the state police helped, and they did a good job, and the bone fragment, the skull, was found to be Sarah's. No other body parts were found, but the state police did do an extensive search of the area, and that's all that they came up with. The DNA testing, analyzing the DNA took a long time, but Sarah was ultimately laid to rest in consecrated ground on January 13th, 1998, and I suppose that's a blessing. Sarah's family said goodbye to her, but the police kept working the case. The police ultimately identified a suspect and what a beauty he is. I'm going to tell you all about him right after the break. Are you a local or international law firm that needs accurate, comprehensive, and timely background investigations and litigation support? Let Impact Due Diligence Investigations do the legwork. If there's information you need for a case, we'll find it. When you need to know, call Impact. Visit us at impactduediligence.com. Okay, guys, we're back. But get ready to be pissed off, okay? because I'm going to tell you about the suspect. His name is John Worley, and he was originally from Sherbourne, Massachusetts, which is in direct proximity to Wayland, okay? So 
jump back in the time machine with me. And in 1966, this John Worley was charged with attacking a girl in Sherborne. But as the trial came to fruition, he fled. He fled to Texas. And in Texas in 1967, he raped and murdered a girl age 15 in Dallas. And he's convicted of this crime. I'm sure her family was thinking, great, he's given a life sentence. He'll hurt nobody else and he'll suffer in prison for what he did to our kid. Well, Texas is usually pretty good on criminal justice, but they fucked up on this one. This guy ends up serving 17 years and then he's paroled. And he's paroled to Massachusetts. Believe that? So this shithead is paroled in 84. And in 85, that's when Sarah goes missing. But let me tell you the job this guy got when he got out of prison. He got a job installing swing sets, going from home to home, installing swing sets. Who orders swing sets? Families order swing sets. What do families consist of? Kids. So he'd just drive around these neighborhoods, do his installation, and I believe he looked for victims. He was in the perfect job for it. I just can't believe it. So six weeks after Sarah goes missing, Mr. Worley is arrested. He had attempted to take a youngish looking 20-something-year-old female and force her into his vehicle at knife point. A cab driver intervened, and the cops ended up pulling them over. Cab driver did an outstanding job, was very brave. They arrest Worley. That violates his parole in Texas. But in the meantime, he does about 12 years here in Massachusetts for this crime. Then he's shipped back to Texas to finish out his life sentence. Yeah, that's right. He had gotten a life sentence in Texas, served 17 years, and was then eligible for parole for murder and rape of a 15-year-old kid. But this isn't all Mr. Worley is suspected of. He's actually suspected of being a serial killer because two months before Sarah Pryor went missing, a 16-year-old by the name of Catherine Malcolmson of Stowe, Massachusetts, went missing. Kathy Malcolmson left her house in Stowe and was driving the 1.5 or 2 miles to the supermarket where she had a job. I think I said she's 16, and I believe this was her first job. It was like Kathy had fell off the face of the earth. But for some reason, the police initially classified this as a runaway rather than a missing person or an abduction. So as good of a job as the police had done in the Sarah Pryor case, they kind of fucked it up on the Kathy Malcolmson case. And if it wasn't for John Wordy's attempted abduction in Newton, Massachusetts, which he got arrested for, I don't think it ever would have been connected. But when Wordy had committed this crime, I believe it's in the same county. I believe it's Middlesex County. And they started putting this all together. We have missing women, missing girls, and somebody taking this girl at knife point. So they do put this all together. Wordy, and I think I called him Worley before, but his name is John Wordy, W-H-I-R-T. And I classify this guy as a serial killer. So by the time the authorities in Massachusetts put these cases together, Wordy's already back in Texas. They do go and interview him down there. 
But he's got no reason to cooperate. They can't get him out of a life sentence in Texas. They've got nothing to offer him, and he just clams up. So the investigation on the Sarah Pryor end of things, witnesses started coming forward, and the witnesses stated that on Concord Road there, 126, they did see a vehicle near the bike path that Wordy had been operating. And his work records show, remember, he had gotten a job installing swing sets. His work records put him in direct proximity to Sarah Pryor's house. So the police do the same thing for the Malcolmson case. And lo and behold, his work records put him in the Stowe-Hudson area as well during her abduction. Catherine Malcolmson's body has not been found. Her bike was later found in the woods. And... I'm telling you that the police did an excellent job in the Sarah Pryor case. They really dropped the ball here with Catherine Malcolmson. Sorry. So Mr. John Robert Wordy had been convicted of raping and killing one 15-year-old, and he's suspected in the Pryor case and the Malcolmson case. I think he qualifies as a serial killer. He's still in prison in Texas. The police have linked him to both of these cases up here, but... He's just a shitbag and won't give it up. He's going to die in prison, but he gets up for parole every five years or so, and the families have to fight to keep him in there. Imagine that. I guess the only upside here is that John Robert Wordy will likely die in the Texas prison. But the intervening years for the prior family hadn't been so great. The husband and wife, Barbara and Andrew, ended up divorcing. That's not a surprise. I guess Andrew had developed an alcohol problem after Sarah disappeared. That's not surprising either. Barbara, for her part, went on to work for the attorney general's office as a victim's advocate, and she was pretty well known for that for quite some time. And then she went in, I think, and did it privately. She continued to advocate for victims' rights in this case. And something I want to say here again, I think I said it in the Amy Lord case, Nobody likes people in jail, but there are evil people in this world, and that's where they belong. The reason we have a criminal justice system in this country is to keep animals like Whirly away from people like Sarah Pryor and Kathy Mellinson. Okay? So when you're advocating for letting people out of prison, know that the people in prison are John Whirly. Okay? Be careful of what you're asking for. This is the third or fourth case where people on parole have committed these heinous acts. We have to rethink parole for violent criminals. This guy served 17 years on a life sentence in Texas. In Massachusetts, do you know how long an average life sentence is? Seven years. Seven years, then you're eligible for parole. Life sentence doesn't mean life sentence. John Worley should have been put to death the first time around, and it would have saved Sarah Pryor and likely Kathy Mellinson. Capital punishment was designed specifically for people like John Worley, and it has its place in society. It would have saved two other lives. The intervening years since Sarah's disappearance weren't good for her dad, Andrew. He, as I mentioned, developed an alcohol problem, but he was also involved in a severe car accident in 2014 which left him paralyzed from the chest down. I believe it happened in July. 
and he hung on for about a month or so and passed away in August of 2014. He was never the same. Barbara was never the same. All this heartache could have been avoided here. I apologize, guys. Sometimes I get emotional with this stuff. It's difficult wading through all this blood and guts sometimes, but these stories need to be told. And I hope one day there'll be justice for Sarah Pryor and Kathy Mallinson. So I'm going to leave you there. If you need to get a hold of me, email me at barry at bostonconfidential.net. I've been getting a lot of emails. I love interacting with you guys. So keep it up. And I will see you for the next episode. Talk to you soon.